This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us again. I just got off the phone with Shengqing Wu to talk with her about her new book, Modern Archaics, Continuity and Innovation in the Chinese Lyric Tradition, 1900 to 1937. This came out in 2013 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, this is a book I really, really loved, um, both because of the ideas that you'll hear us talking about over the course of the book, but also because of the really gorgeous prose style, the really gorgeous writing. Um, that you will find throughout the book, both in um, Shengqing's own prose and also in her translations of the many, many poems that stud the book. It's just really, really a gorgeous reading experience. So the book looks at the practice of classical poetry, a very particular form of poetry in early 20th century China, as there is a social and cultural and political transition from the Qing to the Republican period. And what it does is it looks at the ways that a number of poets, um, some as individuals, others as um, part of communities that grow up around the practice of these forms, used these formal constraints of a kind of uh, style of poetry that some might otherwise deride as, you know, too stiff, too formal, too constrained, to actually innovate, um, to challenge prevailing norms of writing and thinking about the world and to really create new means of um, writing selfhood, new forms of being, new ways of writing. And so Shengqing Wu in here is really challenging a kind of um, flat-footed, static notion of a tradition and a modernity um, that stay put and that exist as polar opposites. The book really completely upends that way of understanding tradition and modernity um, in the context of late Qing and Republican China. So in the service of helping us rethink um, the generative nature of classical style poetry in the book, the book um, explores some key questions. And these are questions that I'm taking right from the book itself. How, this is question number one, how, as a growing need developed for a new vocabulary and aestheticism to express the unprecedented turmoil of the time and to introduce new ideas, did this particular style of ornamented lyrics come into vogue? Second question, how did the style surface qualities and form relate to the substance to ultimately communicate profound meaning? And third, what role did the style play in literati life? So those are questions taken um, from Shengqing herself. Um, over the course of the book as well, as you'll hear, there are some gorgeous, gorgeous poems. And so please um, get yourself a copy of the book, uh, give it a read and enjoy because it's wonderful. Not only do humans love it, but as you'll hear midway through or sort of early midway through the interview, cats love it too. And you'll hear um, my cat Habibna scratching around at one point as uh, in evidence of the fact that she clearly felt really strongly about the book. And in fact, um, what Shengqing didn't know when I was talking with her is last night I was reading Habibna poems from the book and she really loved it too. So it's good for humans and cats. You heard it here. Um, it's a really wonderful book to read and it was really wonderful to talk with Shengqing about it. So I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. Thanks for listening. 
I'm here to talk with Shengqing Wu about her really wonderful new book, Modern Archaics. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Shengqing, and thanks very, very much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kara. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So, Shengqing, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to decide to work on poetry in modern China? Sure. Um, I was a major in um, Chinese literature when I was an uh, undergraduate student um, at uh, Fudan University. Um, and then I went on to um, study my MA with a concentration on the late imperial literature, uh, especially Ming and Qing dynasties. But at that time, I have um, no idea uh, what I was going to do. Um, and then I uh, went to uh, U.S. to attend uh, UCLA um, in late uh, 90s. And I must say that uh, my advisor, um, Professor Ted Hughes, um, is a person who really uh, sparked uh, my interest um, in late Qing um, period. Um, so as a couple of us, um, his students, was working on the uh, late Qing literature. And for us, I think it is a time period um, unlike um, the May 4th time period is that this is a time period is that not only um, China is not only experienced this drastic political and uh, the societal changes, but this is also a time period full of the um, intellectual um, energies and the different possibilities um, that uh, um, the intellectual discourses um, can took. Um, so, so that's uh, why this time period become uh, very uh, fascinating to me. Um, so when I started with my uh, dissertation uh, proposal, um, I started with a very naive goal. I simply want to locate a so-called um, alternative voice um, in the May Force discourses. Um, and uh, my dissertation proposal um, covers a range of topics, and uh, I plan to start uh, to um, write one chapters on classical poetry. I want to find out what exactly happened uh, to this form. Um, um, but fortunately, I think I started with um, I started with writing that particular chapter, and then I um, realized I truly stepped into a very rich field um, that. I could uh, well devote uh, the rest of my scholarly life. Um, so, yeah, so this is um, after 10 years later, uh, more than 10 years later, I think, uh, this is um, the product. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So the book that we are here today to talk about explores classical poetry in the early 20th century in China, and it looks at the ways that this kind of formal elements of classical poetry were uh, sort of manipulated and changed and used in order to react to uh, political, cultural, and historical necessities of the time, as you put it in the book. And we'll talk much more about this um, later on in our conversation. It's, it's an, an amazing set of case studies that take us through what happened to be some really interesting and I think really transformative ways of rethinking some really crucial and fundamental historiographical points um, about you know modern China, but also how we understand language and poetry and translation. So you've said a little bit about how you came to the topic, and you mentioned that this began in some way as a dissertation project. So can you, um, for us, talk about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any major transformations in the project or in how you were thinking about the topic? Sure. Um, this, um, this, my dissertation, um, as I mentioned, is that um, I personally realized I stepped into a very rich field, but at the same time, this is uh, uncharted territory, um, since there's uh, so many materials and so many fascinating uh, poets. So personally, I just, um, when I was writing my dissertation, I feel like I don't know how to handle those materials. Um, so in the way that I did uh, sort of very mechanical 
simple way is that I choose um, the three representative poets, and I wrote、um, three chapters、um, in my dissertation. So I choose the Zhu Zhumou, which I think is a representative poet of this particular genre called Zi song lyrics, and then the Chen Shanli, who is the、um, the, the representative poet of the, this style called Tongguang style poetry,、uh, which is modeled after、uh, Song Dynasty poetics, and then this、uh, fascinating female poet Li Bichang. So it is a very、um, author-centered kind of approach、uh, to the materials.、Uh, when I revising my dissertation into a book,、um, and I since I already spent a few years、uh, to working through the materials,、um, at that time I personally feel that I have a much better grasp of the materials and the overall、um, formed、uh, overall pictures of the poetic writings during that time.、Um, So this book is、um, significantly expanded.、Um, so I have、um, six chapters, and、uh, and also、um, some chapters.、Um, I have this more、uh, theme-focused kind of approach.、Um, since I after I go through those materials, I did form the more general、um, assessment and ideas about、um, those poets and、uh, um, the and their writings.、Um, so. I'm happy to see that、um, the as、uh, a book、um, is significantly enriched and different from the dissertation project. Wonderful! It's also、um, it just rich, very, very rich as a book, and it's also written in absolutely gorgeous prose. So I just want to get that right on the table at the beginning. It's absolutely <laughs> beautifully written. Thank you.、Um, it's very、Thanks. writerly. So thank you for that. Thank you. So the introduction to the book opens with a description of the poetry of 13th century writer Wu Wenying in a 1927 anthology, and here's the description. This is a quote: "Wu's song lyrics are like a seven-tiered treasure pagoda that dazzles the eyes, but when broken apart, the fragments cannot be formed into a coherent whole." So you go on to talk about the image of the treasure pagoda as a way of talking about classical style poetry at the turn of the twentieth century, and you talk about the aesthetics of that poetry using the term. Ornamental lyricism. So, can you get us started by talking a little bit about that concept? What is ornamental lyricism for you, and in what way is that central to what you're doing in this part of the book? Okay,、um, I use this ornamental lyricism to refer to a range of formal and aesthetic、um, attributes, and as well as the practice.、Uh, what I meant by that is this group of the poets; they're deeply committed to the、uh, literary and poetic conventions and the forms. Their extensive use of the、um, the allusions and also the very beautiful and Ornamental lang-、uh, the lang- classical language and the images, and also this、uh, use of the、um, this rhetorics、um, in the poetry called bi and xin. So in the ways that they are deeply,、uh, they had this type of deeply formal commitment.、Um, at the same time, or, or I also use this. Ornamental lyricism、uh, to refers to a kind of social、uh, practice means that they are committed to this kind of literary、um, ideal about the、um, elegant、uh, lifestyle, and it is also、uh, represent the certain kind of、uh, cultural、um, ideals that they deeply、um, committed to.、Um, And、uh, at the same time, I also use ornamental lyricism in a sort of ironic way,、um, because、um, this group of the、uh, poets、um, in, during the May Fourth period, they are really attacked、um, by the May Fourth intellectuals. So the way that they were being attacked is that、um, is exactly because their language、um, is ornamental and also.、Um, a, 
uh, which revealed the certain sense of the over-decoration and also the social irrelevance. So, for instance, Chen Duxiu would say that the classical poetry, classical uh, literature is the clay doll um, that uh, pretty up by the makeup. Um, so, in that sense, um, I try to use um, this um, ornamental uh, in a little um, kind of ironic way in response to the, uh, the attack and criticism from the um, vernacular uh, uh, literature camp. Great. Amazing. Um, And you say right at the beginning of the book as well, and I think the book does this very effectively, that in part because the style is so associated with very negative values, the book, among many other things, is going to challenge that way of understanding um, 20th century classical poetry and really help us appreciate it in a very new way. And, And it does that very well. Now, in the book, um, and early on in this introduction, you introduce the notion of modern archaics. So this is also the title of the book, and, and it happens to be a very important notion here in the introduction. And you introduce this notion as a way to inform and also move beyond a discourse of tradition and modernity in the book. So can you talk um, about that for us? What is What do you mean by modern archaics um, briefly, and can you talk about this in relation to the kind of work you're trying to do here to, to ask us to um, problematize these notions of tradition and modernity that we might um, come to the book already having formed. Thank you. Um, I after uh, uh, when I spent a few years the years to uh, work on those materials, I think we know that um, in our field uh, in the modern Chinese literature uh, that this concept of the uh, modernity um, is ubiquitous, um, and also people come with this, uh, um, a, a, a revised uh, version of this uh, concept, such as mo- uh, multiple modernities, alternative modernities, etc. So. Um, when I was working through my materials, I really grow this kind of dissatisfactions um, with this use of the modernity. I think in many ways, um, it is a really um, a limited kind of uh, tool, a concept, um, to, uh, especially when I was dealing with um, my materials, um, is so highly formal and aesthetic. Um, so I think um, in the way that I try to um, uh, postulate this template that to couple this uh, modern and, uh, and tradition in order to emphasize this type of um, conflictual and contested nature of this uh, formation of the uh, modern culture during that time while highlighting their uh, mutually transforming power. Um, so I try to suggest that they are paradoxically a co-dependent uh, framework. Um, but at the same time, um, I also use the modern as an adjective um, since I think I try to um, not privilege uh, this uh, concept, of, concept of being modern or concept of the modernity. Um, instead, I want to um, emphasize the tradition um, is a location that I'm going to um, um, investigate. And this is also a location that full of the um, energy and uh, um, the dynamics and uh, it's a living enterprise. Um, so I really hope, although I don't really know whether I accomplish that, is that I really try to go beyond this concept of the modernity um, in the way that to treat the modernity and uh, tradition in a more um, dialectic kind of uh, form. Um, But at the same time, um, this book is titled Modern Archaics, so it's not in the way that modern tradition. Uh, The reason I want to use the archaics um, is... um, is, uh, instead of tradition, is also have the several concerns. Uh, one is that for the stylistic and aesthetic kind of concern is that um, 
a group of the poets and uh, um, the uh, the poetics that I um, deal with in this book is that they are the people really invoke um, the distant past um, and not immediate past, and their extensive use of archaism um, in their writings. So, in many ways, the archaism is part of um, their um, aesthetic and poetic style. So, I really want to um, emphasize. Um, uh, that aspect um, is not only just um, um, in, uh, committed to the tradition, but they are committed or invoke the distant tradition, uh, turn it into a kind of archaic kind of approach um, to the um, tradition. Um, but at the same time, the archaics um, is also in the way that is, uh, to a certain extent, is a poetics. Um, and it's a part of a kind of aesthetic idea and the ideology um, that they are fully committed to. So, um, so in that sense, I also want to um, emphasize that a- aspect. So, I um, couple it, the, um, you know, um, postulate uh, this template uh, together um, as a modern archaics. Great. Thank you so much. And in fact, you mentioned the importance of style and style or form is a really important part of the book. So the book um, discusses, and we'll talk about the details of this, the importance of understanding and using lyric form in the Qing. And this is really, um, I really appreciated this as a historian. And you can hear my cat in the background is also really appreciating this right now. It just scratches the wall saying, yes, this is one of the things I loved about the book too. Um, I, re- <laughs> I really appreciated this part of it um, in, because what you're doing here is not, as you put it, mining poems for the cultural and historical information inscribed in them, but paying careful attention to the formal aspects of the poem. Yes, Hadibna. Great. I know. You agree also. That's fantastic. And speaking of form, part one of the book um, is called A Formal Feeling Comes, and this is named after an Emily Dickinson poem. It looks closely at the relationship between, as you put it here, historical trauma and the poetry of mourning, and it traces some ways that an important group of late Qing intellectuals looked for literary strategies to help them deal with loss. Now, that loss is coming in the aftermath of 1900, with the invasion of foreign troops and the subsequent flight of the royal family in 1900. This is the year of Gangtze, and we'll talk about the importance of that in a moment. Chapter one focuses on the writing of the poetry in the um, or I, I just or in this um, in this context. Okay, so you're arguing in this part of the book that the poets, when faced with kind of major social changes that are coming um, out of 1900, are clinging to a lyric tradition and a stable poetic form that offered them some kind of solidity among shifting grounds. And you do this by bringing us into two really fascinating case studies. The first case study is a literature around the death of Junfei, the Guangxu Emperor's royal concubine. So can you talk about that for us? It's a really amazing case study. Why and how did the poetry become so important in the context of literature about Junfei? Okay, sure. Um, this um, chapter actually revised from my um, the dissertation chapter on the Zhu Zhu Mao. Um, so when I was um, um, researching the materials about the Zhu Zhu Mao, um, I uh, the one. Um, cultural phenomena was um, caught my attention is that Zhu uh, Mao and his cohort uh, write a good number of, uh, a good number of poems about the uh, death of the Zhenfei. And that caught my attention uh, in the way that, well, we all know that, you know, the death of a beautiful woman is uh, tragic. Um, but in the way that um, consider the scale of the um, Genzi incident, um, it's, it's a disastrous in many ways ways. So why um, this um, incident um, in particular um, that uh, was um, you know, uh, caught the attention by this group of poets? Um, so I did uh, some research on this, uh, this very tragic um, you know, fate. This woman was very tragic fate, uh, Zhenfei. And uh, I absolutely fascinated by 
by um, her stories. As a matter of fact, um, not only um, this chapter, I also wrote a paper um, on her uh, together with another notoriously known uh, figure that is Sai Jinghua uh, to uh, show that how there are in the image, uh, their image in the literary and historical uh, sources coming um, coming from this kind of, uh, to a certain extent, neglected or uh, a less known uh, loyal concubine or uh, courtesans to emerge as a national hero um, in the late uh, 1930s um, through the uh, films and uh, and the drama. So it's really an intersection uh, between this um, kind of female image, um, female body, and the nationalism and the gender imag- imagination through the uh, mass media. Um, so in the way that uh, what the trajectory of her story um, is fascinating to me. Um, so I wrote in that article. But here, return to this chapter, um, I find um, in the way that um, this um, this uh, very interesting to work on her case is in the way that several um, several things are coming together um, at this moment in terms of the Zi poetry writings. So first of all, we have this historical incident here that is the death of the uh, royal concubine, and at the same time, the emperor was on the free um, uh, towards the uh, west part of the China, and uh, then uh, this group of the uh, poets, uh, they were just uh, left in this uh, occupied city of the um, Beijing. Um, so this is the historical situation um, um, here, um, but at the same time, we also need to consider to the uh, generic uh, tradition of the genre. We know that in the Chinese um, literary history, there is a very uh, developed, uh, established tradition. Um, this is called Xiangchao um, Meiren. So it's called a uh, fragrant paint and the beauty of this tradition um, from the Cuzi. So in the way that uh, when the poet write about uh, the, uh, the, uh, the beautiful woman's longing uh, for the absent husband, it's in the way to express um, their royalty uh, to the emperor, um, to, exp- uh, to express their uh, spiritual uh, pursuit uh, to the political and cultural ideals. And this is a very established uh, um, kind of literary um, uh, traditions. But I must um, emphasize um, that um, in the late um, 19th century, uh, this type of uh, tradition was really um, re um, uh, it, uh, revoked um, in the Zi poetry writing. Uh, we know that the Zi poetry writing is always write a lot of about the romantic love po- uh, love emotions. But in during that times when they write about the uh, love poems, it's always are it most likely it is a veiled kind of criticism or an expressions about a certain kind of political message. So it is interesting to see that here in this case, this female image is really become a, compo- a composition of a real historical character that is refers to the Zhen Fei, and also it's a figure. It's a figure. It's a literary figure that is associated with this long writing tradition of the um, the, the fragrant plant and the beauty tradition. Um, so in many ways, um, that this female image um, they optimized um, their longing um, on the literal level such as the, the uh, to the absent emperor who is on the run at that time, but more metaphorically and allegorically um, that expressed this, um, they are kind of um, political message um, about the falling apart of the um, uh, of this political system, um, but at the same time, it's also a very um, um, general sense, the falling part of this whole culture system. So uh, I think in many ways, this kind of uh, multi-layered uh, message is really uh, revealed very well through this uh, female, a very concrete female image and uh, um, this um, very tragic kind of incident um, happened during that time. 
Thank you so much. Now, the other case study in this chapter looks at, we won't have um, time to talk about it in any detail, just in the interest of moving on, but it looks at an anthology called Song Lyrics of the Autumn of Gongzi, which was collectively composed by three poets in Beijing while it was under attack. And I mention this in part so that I can mention that one of the three poets, um, Wang Pengyun, Liu Fuyao, and Zhu Zumo, one of these poets, um, Zhu in particular, was known as Dr. Rhyme. And I just love that. So anybody who's listening, feel free to steal that. Dr. Rhyme. You heard it here. Uh, you heard it here first. Um, and they, they actually had a, a kind of little poetry club where they would get together um, and write poems together every night. And also feel free to steal that idea as well, listeners. Poetry club, but make sure you get to be Dr. Rhyme. So chapter two um, looks in particular at this kind of debate um, in the air, and you, you uh, locate it in a specific debate between two people at the beginning of the chapter, between kind of how to balance freedom of expression with formal constraints and formal restraint. The chapter looks closely at the work of Chen Sanli, now, he was a poet of the Tongguang school, which flourished during the reign of Tongzhi and Guangxu emperors and promoted a kind of poetic style of the Song dynasty. He and his dad were exiled and then pardoned in 1900, and his dad died suddenly the summer after the pardon. The death of his father and the larger context of the kind of national upheaval that was happening at the time occasioned in, him, in his writing in himself an outpouring of lyricism an outpouring of lyrical writing. So in this context, as you say, in this part of the book, he kind of turned formal constraints of the poetic genre he was working in into tools of innovation. And because this is an important point that speaks to this larger idea of modern archaics, right, this larger idea of, you know, finding innovation in what we might otherwise um, disregard as mere tradition, um, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that element of what he was doing. How, or what are, what's maybe one example or two examples of how he was turning formal constraints into tools of innovation in a way that you find is important. Okay, sure. Um, there's um, the Chen Zanli, this, um, he is a representative figure of this so-called Tongguang style poet. And as a matter of fact, um, that in the past decade, that the reputation of the Chen Zanli is, um, has been significantly revived uh, in the mainland China. Um, and this is, uh, the reason is a little ironic in the way that because he is also the uh, f- uh, father of a, a prominent um, historian, Chen Ying. Um, so um, the, in the way that because people interested in his um, son, uh, Chen Yinqiu, and then um, revived uh, the reputation of the Chen Zanli. And uh, um, the Kara, you summarized very well um, about the main points that I tried to uh, make in this chapter. Um, I, I want to say that um, the, and in this chapter, I want to um, express uh, uh, the two uh, main things. One is that, as you already mentioned, um, that after the um, death of um, his father, um, that the Chen Zanli was really um, in his poetry writing, he, he is really outpouring his uh, sentiment um, in terms of this kind of personal uh, trauma and uh, uh, write about the personal trauma and also the political trauma he experienced um, during that time. Um, so this is a one kind of historical moment. And the second uh, key moment for him is also the uh, fall of the dynasties. So in 1912, um, that is is also the very um, crucial moment for him and for his group of the poets. That in the way that because the dynasty was gone, and in the way that the culture uh, they are familiar with falling apart. Um, so in that kind of sense, I try to argue that uh, the function of the uh, classical uh, poems um, and is really changing in the way that. Um, during that time, this form is really turn it um, to them, turn it into a kind of weapon for the struggle, for the meanings, um, and for the making a sense of the world when their world was falling apart. Um, and uh, um, the uh, 
And at the same time, I also uh, talk about that his um, a formal um, um, experiment um, in some ways um, in this um, in in his struggle of the meanings, um, because in the way that this kind of more or less um, concrete, um, coherent uh, linguistic vision um, that usually expressed in this um, in this classical poems um, in these forms is a Shattered. So, in many ways, this kind of in, um, disintegrated kind of uh, perceptions about the modern world is really um, um, kind of uh, stimulate uh, him uh, in many ways, and his um, his poetry was react to this kind of new perceptions and new change um, of the world. Um, so, uh, specifically, he was, for instance, um, in his. Um, in his writings, that he liked to use a lot of difficult diction, a lot of very um, unfamiliar, um, like uh, unfamiliar classical vocabularies, even unfamiliar to his contemporary uh, readers. Um, so one anecdote that uh, had about this poet that he always has a kind of a little notebook. Um, so whenever he heard or saw some. Um, a strange, bizarre, a less used, lesser used kind of words. Then he will uh, write down and uh, take a note, and later he can use in his um, poetry writing. Um, so in the way that uh, his habit was um, was laughed at by the other people, uh, but uh, but in this book that I try to argue that his um, his use of this difficult this type of difficult and uh, lesser uh, known uh, vocabularies and his extensive use of the allusions um, and etc. is a way to try to make uh, the poetic language. Unfamiliar uh, to his readers, so is this kind of unfamiliarity is also is in the way that uh, to try to um, articulate that his um, kind of new feelings and uh, new perceptions when he was uh, facing uh, in the um, in the um, in his world, and at the same time he also do a lot of experimentation about the poetic uh, the boundaries of poetic. Genre, uh, for instance, in his uh, poems, that he also incorporates uh, some kind of element uh, from the elements from the prose writings. So it's in the way that to try to um, expand uh, the boundaries of the uh, poetic forms. Wonderful, thank you so much. Very eloquently put. So, speaking, you talked about unfamiliarity. As we move to part two of the book, we move to contexts of emergent familiarity, familiarity of um, these poets with one another. Part two of the book looks at the social dynamics of different affective communities, as you put it, who practiced classical style poetry. Now, there there are affective communities here, and I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that in a moment that are really, really interesting. And then the third chapter of the book, um, which is one of two chapters in part two, looks at poetry clubs of various sorts. The chapter begins by describing one particular gathering at the Shangsi Festival in 1913, and then uses that to move out to explore um, shi and si clubs of old-fashioned literati. In Shanghai, it looks at clubs um, in, in Shanghai and Beijing in particular. It also talks about uh, kinds of games um, that would be played among the poets who were members of these clubs, like the poetry bell game. And you, you talk about riddling and riddles as a kind of social device here, too. It's a really fascinating chapter. So as a way into this chapter, can you talk a little bit about this notion of affective community? Um, what does this mean to you? And maybe can you give an example of an affective community from this part of the book that you feel? really uh, sums up this notion and its importance for you. Okay. Um, so, um, 
In this chapter, I try to, in this part of the book, the second part of the book, I try to use our more sociological kind of approach uh, to the uh, materials. So I um, emphasize on the um, the uh, poetry, um, gatherings, clubs, and this kind of group activities. Um, and when I, I try to um, emphasize that when we deal with this group of, uh, this type of uh, poets um, and their writings, it is really um, important to study the communities um, because in many ways um, such it is a group activities um, and as you um, um, mentioned uh, point out that that this kind of familiarity is very important familiarity um, in, in the cultural terms familiarity is also in the formal terms in the ways that they are both um, uh, they are um, capable writing the uh, classical style poetry and at the same time, they also uh, will write the poems correspondent to each other, um, the, use the same rhymes, etc. So in the ways that from this kind of formal and linguistic kind of echoes, then you will exchange um, the feelings uh, with, your, um, uh, with your poet friends. Um, so this is from the more uh, kind of form, formal and uh, social aspect um, of their gatherings. But um, in this uh, chapters that I borrow this concept from the trauma studies and try to um, uh, label them as kind of affective communities uh, because um, this uh, their uh, group activities is mainly situated after the, um, after the fall of the Qing dynasties, after the uh, 1912. So uh, during that time, such as uh, those loyalists, those uh, leftovers of the Qing dynasties, there are many of them living in the places such as Shanghai and uh, uh, Tianjin. Um, so they, they really um, uh, like engage a very active kind of activities um, to get together to write the poems. Um, so the Poetry here serve a very important kind of functions uh, for them to express this type of um, uh, pet up emotions about the uh, disappearing, uh, falling apart dynasties and disappearing of uh, literary cultures. Um, and this is very important for their um, kind of uh, spiritual um, um, well beings. Um, so, so in that sense, um, they are not just exchange the poem. Uh, for the aesthetic um, or for the entertainment kind of purpose, but it is also uh, in the ways that to uh, to communicate um, and, and among each other in a deep uh, spiritual and emotional level. Um, so in this chapter, I give um, in the first part of this chapter, I deal with the Shangzi uh, um, the um, festivals. So this is our festival that uh, um, happened in the uh, springtime, and it has a long kind of a traditions. And this um, sounds a festival in the Republican era um, in the 1913 was actually uh, re-activated um, by this um, an intellectual um, that um, very familiar to all the listeners that is Liang Qichao. So you will see that the Liang Qichao also um, actively involved um, in this uh, group um, of the uh, communities. And we know that the Liang Qichao is always have the, this kind of image of uh, to be um, the political leader and to be a progressive um, in, the, um, um, in the political realm. But during this time, early Republican era, that he actually also extensively involved um, in this group of the poets um, here and also uh, this type of uh, poetry gatherings. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. So in the second part of this part of the book, which we won't have time to talk about in any detail again, there, there's so many wonderful things we could talk about. But I'll just mention for listeners, because it's also a really interesting chapter, um, chapter four gives us another context um, in which to understand poetry as a social practice by looking at a couple of case studies here. Um, the chapter begins by looking at the literary career of Chen Yan, who's a major, another major Tongguang-style poetry 
uh, critic here, he represents in this chapter the transformation of an old-fashioned literatus figure into a modern professor and scholar. And the chapter talks about some of the ways he did that, including a work called Poetry Talks, um, which was really, really popular. And it effectively promoted classical poetry and also promoted his own authority um, as an expert um, on the form of uh, classical poetry in the Republican era. The last part of the chapter gives us a kind of genealogy, as you put it, of modern poets that are working in the Tzu form, and it focuses on two in particular. Um, it, it, one of them uh, publishes a journal of Tzu studies, and another founds a club, another poetry club. I love these poetry clubs. It really, really makes me want to start one. Um, and you do end that chapter by talking about the establishment of the study of Tzu as a kind of academic discipline, which is another social transformation. Now, this brings us into part three of the book. This is in many ways one of, for me, the most fascinating parts of the book. This part of the book looks very closely at traveling poets and their work, and it looks um, specifically at the kind of um, cross-fertilization, I think as you put it, and experimentation that happens through their travel and also through the kind of translation that their travel is and also translation activities as they're working across languages um, between Chinese and other, language, langu uh, and other languages. Okay, so chapter five um, looks at one of the figures that you mentioned very early on in our conversation. This is Lu Bicheng. Now, this chapter considers, as you put it here, the interplay of space and gendered relations by looking closely at her work. And she's a lyric poet. She's a feminist activist. She is absolutely fascinating. So can you um, introduce her for us? Tell us a little bit about her and what you take to be the important parts of her kind of biography that we need to understand to understand the work that um, she's doing in this chapter. Sure. Um, I think I um, still vividly uh, recall the moment that I um, encountered her poetry um, anthology. Uh, that was um, in 2001 when I was um, doing my research trip back to China, and I was um, in the um, staying in the um, Shanghai uh, Shuchen, and uh, um, because at that time was um, her published uh, her uh, poetry anthology was just uh, published uh, by the Shanghai Gongji. And I was literally standing there and finished reading uh, her uh, poetry collection, uh, and find her uh, absolutely uh, fascinating um, in all aspects. And uh, at that time, I already know that I must write something about her. Um, so um, as a matter of fact, that in the past 10 years um, that he, uh, she became so popular, uh, in mainland China and uh, in the way that uh, uh, everyone knows uh, is that she is now become kind of the best known as a, a female uh, poet um, um, during the Republican era. And what is uh, fascinating about uh, her is that in the way that she is not only um, is a feminist um, activist, um, she, um, she also um, engages the various uh, different aspects of the um, education um, and the newspaper publications, but also she travels extensively um, to uh, United States and to Europe, and also um, involve um, the animal rights uh, movement uh, in Europe during that time, and also um, she also involved the translation of the Buddhist text and devoted up to the, um, the later part of her life um, to the uh, Buddhism. So in many ways that her life trajectory um, is uh, fascinating, but at the same time she is also, her life story is also an enigma um, in many ways that is a mystery, um, is uh, many aspects of her life we still don't really know about. So, um, so in that sense, um, it's, it's also very uh, fascinating uh, to a researcher. But I think what is most important for me is that um, she spent a good amount of time um, in traveling in Europe and especially living in Switzerland. Um, and she wrote a good deal about the um, Alpes Mountains, um, Switzerland, wrote about the, uh, the Rome, ancient Rome, etc. So in the way that those type of foreign landscape uh, become uh, is a new object 
um, enter into the spatial configuration of the Zi form. As we know that the Zi as a genre uh, usually expresses kind of love emotions, the spatial um, uh, configuration in the Zi is usually limited to the boudoir settings, uh, to the um, gardens, um, uh, to the limited kind of um, space. But here, um, that she bring us to this kind of vast grandeur landscape um, of the uh, foreign landscape. Um, so in the way that this aspect is really opens the horizon of the um, Zi poetry writing during uh, that time. But this aspect um, is uh, has been well appreciated by the scholars um, and, and her contemporaries because they try to argue that how she um, in, um, brought widened um, the spatial kind of presentations of the Zi poetry. Um, but uh, uh, in this um, chapter, that what I try to emphasize is that in the way that she is not only doing so to uh, depict this kind of um, falling landscape in the Zi poetry, but in many ways, she also used her feminist kind of consciousness to rewrite um, this uh, grandeur space um, in the way that turned this um, uh, space of the um, uh, uh, grandeur landscape in many ways um, uh, to be our expressions of her um, feminist uh, um, consciousness and to a certain point even this kind of female uh, utopians um, uh, to a certain extent. So um, in the ways that she really worked on um, her gendered kind of identities uh, intervened uh, um, interweave this gendered identities uh, into uh, her presentation of the uh, falling landscape um, and in a very artistic kind of way. Thank you so much. Beautiful. And I don't have to ask you anything else about that chapter because you summarized it so gorgeously. Thank you. <laughs> so not only, though, does this part of the book have that fabulous chapter, it also has another fabulous chapter. This is chapter six. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose, classical form and translation. And the title of this chapter comes from really the set piece that opens it. And this is a piece in which you look at a translation by Su Manchu of Robert Burns's A Red, Red Rose. And you look at it, it's actually really fascinating from the perspective of translation studies and translation history um, to give us these poems side by side and walk us through um, what, uh, what translation means in this context. Now, so this chapter looks at the translation and rewriting of Western poetry using classical style verse forms. Again, this you know, classical style verse forms are really at the heart of this study. And you use Su Manchu in his poetry as a major example, as one of two major examples that we look at in this chapter. Now, I particularly um, love him um, for many reasons after reading this book. <laughs> one of the reasons is that he has this sort of tragic, comical death where you say um, he dies at age 34. And it's not funny, you know, but, but listeners will understand once I say the rest of it. He dies of a digestive problem allegedly caused by eating too much candy. So, you know, just weird, right? Uh, but it kind of it immediately draws him to your attention as an interesting character. But he's um, particularly interesting here in this chapter because of the work that he does translating romantic poetry. So his work translating romantic poetry winds up being crucial, as you put it here, to the development of his poetic voice, and you focus on his translation of not just Burns, but also the work of um, romantic poets like Byron. So he self-fashions here in this part of the book as China's Byron. Can you talk a little bit about that? What makes him China's Byron, and, and what do we need to know about that in order to understand the larger arguments you're making in this part of the book? Okay. Um, the, I'm glad you uh, mentioned this uh, anecdote uh, in the way that uh, after the death of the Shu Manchu, uh, that there's a lot of um, fascinating um, anecdotes about uh, him uh, was uh, circulating. So it's in the way that uh, to a certain extent is uh, is why this um, this poet um, is uh, still very fascinating to um, a generation of uh, readers. Um, so in the way that his um, his life. 
behavior um, is eccentric in um, in certain ways, but uh, it's also um, in his during his own lifetime, he also know how to self fashion um, himself to present this kind of um, a literary uh, genius, um, but a little eccentric and uh, um, go beyond the conventional um, Chinese uh, kind of norm. Um, and in many ways, um, that this is also related to that his um, self identify with this great poet, uh, uh, Rod Barron. Um, so he encountered the Barron when he was uh, studying um, in Japan, and he was absolutely fascinated uh, with uh, Barron. And he was translate um, the uh, the poems uh, of the Barron um, and read the poems of the Barron to the um, to the courtesans uh, to the um, uh, female friends that um, he was um, interact uh, during that time. So um, the, in this chapter, I uh, try to um, um, suggest that through this kind of uh, translation uh, work, um, that we know that the Baron as kind of a representative of the uh, Western Romanticism um, during that time, is really have a, a big effect um, influence on the Sumanshu um, himself in the way that this type of uh, concept about the modern love uh, as an ideal, as an individual behavior, was um, was uh, uh, was translated and uh, influenced that uh, um, his own writings and his um, daily behavior. Um, so, for instance, um, I point out that um, in his poetry, that uh, he really used uh, the first person pronoun a lot to articulate a uh, love emotions or his um, um, like a turmoil of the conflict uh, between the love and his uh, religious commitment um, in, um, very well in his uh, poems and this kind of struggles. And why it is so unique? Because um, in the past, in the China's traditional past, when you, um, when you express the love, usually the first person male voice is always uh, repressed. We heard we had a lot of female love voice um, express the love, but not so much about uh, from the male literatics, and also not so much about expression of the love at the present sense. So, but he did a lot in his own poetry writings, and I try to um, establish this linkage because he was translate a lot um, uh, the, uh, about the uh, from the uh, Robert Burns and the Rod Barons. So in many ways, that this concept of the modern love, also through his uh, translation, that effect that um, his own um, individual uh, poetic work. Great. Thank you so much. Now, there's also um, an example of another uh, poet in this chapter, and it's actually a poet named Wu Mi, and it's a poet um, who gives this part of the book its title, in a way. Um, part three, Lighting the Modern Torch with Ancient Fire, is titled after, as you tell us here, a favorite poem of Wu Mi. Right? And you say that this um, poem really represents his lifelong dream and his work, and you talk in this section of the book about his translations of Christina Rossetti and Matthew Arnold in particular. And it's, again, a really beautiful way into not just his poetry, um, but also uh, the translation of poetry as a craft. And that the, the reason why I'm not asking you to talk specifically about his process is that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about your process before we come to the end. Um, and I, I ask that because one of the really amazing things about this book, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, I really mean that, it's a really gorgeously written book, is that you, your own craft as a translator of poetry, um, and by translator I don't just mean, although I also mean rendering Chinese prose into English prose, but I also mean opening, um, using your translation to open up the prose for us and take us inside and give us a window into a really, um, a much more beautiful world than we would have a window into otherwise through your work. Um, this is a really striking part of the book, and it's clearly, at least it, it seems to me as a reader, and we haven't talked about this <laughs> before, but it seems to me as a reader that translation 
um, of poetry um, seems like a crucial part of your own work. So I wonder if you would um, just speak to us a little bit about that and um, your work as a translator, as it informed um, the, the poetry translations you did that were published in this book. And were there any, I mean, what, are there any elements of your craft that are particularly important? Were there any poems in the book that you felt particularly strongly about as a translator? And can you bring us into um, your world as a translator of poetry just a little bit? Okay, sure. Um, I think um, you brought up a very um, important um, issue here is um, as a scholar, as a, a translator, uh, as a scholar like Wu Mi, and as our, our translator was uh, trying to bring those uh, words and into English language, that in the way that we constantly struggle with this kind of negotiation between the content and the form. Um, so this is what uh, Wu Mi uh, did, that in his his um, writing is that he really tried to turn these classical forms uh, be able to accommodate the modern content. And so this is uh, what uh, he meant to um, um, that um, 就古人之失火, uh, so, um, um, so in the way that um, the, the tradition could be re um, Integrated uh, by the means of the um, inspiration of the foreign cultures um, and accommodating the modern thoughts um, in this type of um, classical forms. So, in the way that he he tried to negotiate between this uh, content and the form. And as a translator, I myself as a translator here is I must confess that I had a very hard time uh, to bring the um, the their beautiful absolutely beautiful written verse uh, into um, English and uh, I myself um, was struggled a lot and uh, I, I don't entirely um, set, uh, satisfied uh, with the result um, I think they are readable um, in, in some sense um, I think because in when I um, facing this kind of um, the, uh, the translation and especially when we come to the poetic forms in the translation, many aspects, um, especially the formal aspect, was uh, almost uh, completely lost uh, through the translation. So in many ways, I try to bring the content um, and uh, into the um, um, and translation um, but uh, the, uh, the, their their craftsmanship and their um, their meticulous attention uh, to the form uh, to the rhymes um, and uh, to this kind of uh, patterns um, that's um, sort of lost during the translation um, but I think in the way that this is also universally um, encountered um, Issues when we come to the verse translation, um, as um, Ezra Pound uh, suggests um, before that, if you can, you know, get um, the ninety percent um, content through, then it's already a divine accident. Um, so, in the way that um, uh, I hope I, you know, accomplish in the way that somehow to a certain extent um, that. Um, uh, rendered um, their meanings uh, through the translation. It's really wonderful. Um, and this is also a great chance for me to mention for listeners that Chapter 6 not only gives us um, the story of these translators and beautiful translations of your own. I think they're beautiful. You may not have been satisfied, but I think they're good. But it's also, um, it offers a really wonderful entree into some of the most important or some important moments in translation theory. Um, so, so readers interested in translation studies in particular um, will find find a lot to work with in chapter six. Now, the epilogue, um, I won't ask you uh, to talk too much about it because, again, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I will mention for listeners that the epilogue um, does a really beautiful job leading us from the context of the book in this um, Qing and Republican context outward into uh, the more immediate past and the future by, uh, in part, relating your experience of going to an exhibition of contemporary Chinese ink painting at the MFA in Boston. 
Boston while finishing the book. And you sort of lead us into these spaces of um, sort of reimagining classical forms in, uh, in a, as a way of creating a different kind of space and as a way of um, changing the present in, in a way that I think is really a wonderful end point um, on the study. So thank you for that. And I want to just mention that Thanks. for our listeners. So, Shangqing, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book, as I'm sure is obvious to listeners just from the past hour. Is there anything in particular about this book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, Kara, I think you have already done a wonderful job um, to summarize um, the major points uh, that I made uh, in this book. Uh, if there's something I must add, um, I, I will simply say that, um, um, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Leiching poetry study uh, is, a, relatively speaking, is an uncharted territory. So uh, working through um, those materials um, is, um, is a very challenging experience for me, but I must add that it's also a very uh, rewarding um, um, intellectually um, kind of an experience for me. So I really um, encourage uh, our young scholars when um, you uh, choose the uh, dissertation topic or research topic, you should go through, um, so you should avoid the crowd and uh, go into those um, uh, areas uh, that uh, which still remain um, uncharted. Thanks. Good advice. Very good. <laughs> so, Sengqing, I know that you um, are already working on another project that you are excited about. So would you um, like to tell us a little bit about what you're up to now? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm uh, very excited about this um, a new project that I was working on. Uh, I'm working on uh, that deal with the relationship between image and text. Um, it's actually part of um, uh, the project related to this um, classical uh, poetry writing is that when I go through those uh, poets' anthology and the collections, I find that they wrote a good number of the poems about the photos and uh, or inscribed on to the photos. Um, so this phenomenon uh, sort of uh, fascinated me. Um, so in the way that I'm uh, doing research now, so I try to um, uh, to examine this kind of relationship between the uh, photography and uh, the text and the poetry in particular. Um, so I give you a few um, examples. For instance, um, there is um, there there is. It's actually related to the Schumann, so I mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. The so, uh, player, right? The right, Zither right. player he was really into. Yeah, sorry, go on. Right, right. Yeah, so he, he, was, he has this, um, the photos of the uh, courtesans, uh, of the Japanese courtesans. So he will inscribe the poems uh, onto that photos, and that photos uh, will be circulated among his uh, male friend. So it's a fascinating kind of case to examine how the expression of the um, heterosexual design um, as a way uh, to consolidate the male friendship. Um, but at the same time, you also see that this object, the photo accompanied with the poems, was also um, circulated among the uh, communities um, as, um, um, as a way to exchange um, the feelings. Um, so this is one example. Another example, for instance, um, that there's a good number of the um, poet, uh, poets write uh, the poems about uh, the self the image of the self. So it's in the way that I try to examine that a house's uh, photography uh, different from the paintings, um, this kind of different visual medias, whether they have the different effect onto the perception about the self and also about um, um, the different effect on the writing about the self. Um, and also um, in the way that because we know that the, um, the, the uh, photography, when uh, photography was in introduced into China in the mid-19th century, so the Chinese literati really turned it into 
a plaything of their own, um, add a lot of theatrical kind of elements um, into their photo shooting experience. For instance, they like to uh, shoot the double portrait self, um, or they like to just post the multiple self um, into one image, um, or they um, shoot the cross-dressed self, etc. So this has become part of a fascinating kind of phenomena related to the literary is um, practice and use of this new visual media. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm very excited about this um, project and want to deal with uh, this issue, this kind of interaction between the image and the text, and also uh, deal with uh, semantically that uh, how the emotion um, is evoked and uh, uh, traveled uh, among the communities. Thanks. I, I love it. Okay, so go write that book, and then I get to read that book, and then we'll talk about that book. So, Ben, another fantastic, another fantastic project. Shengqing, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure um, both to read the book and also to talk with you about it, and I really appreciate your time. So congratulations, and thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kara, for this wonderful opportunity. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.